Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's tryexpressvpn.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com slash space to learn more. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9... Hello again and thank you for joining us on the podcast known as Space Nuts. My name's Andrew Dunkley and I don't know anything. And joining me is Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory who knows a little bit more. Hello, Fred. Uh, only a little bit, though. I'm, you know, only... <laughs> Only a smidgen more, but maybe enough to impress you, if not our listeners. <laughs> I'm easily impressed, Fred. I'm sorry to say. <laughs> uh, now, um, I, I must warn you that uh, I've had a flu shot and now I feel like I haven't had a flu shot. So um, don't get too close to your speakers or your earbuds or whatever. <laughs> but um, we'll press on regardless. So you'll be doing most of the talking today, Fred. We're going to talk about the Hubble Space telescope and the fact that it's uh, detected a star halfway across the universe which is a heck of a long way away uh, and um, still on Hubble we'll look at uh, its replacement or lack of uh, it looks like that's been delayed for another couple of years uh, huge reserves of water ice on Mars that could lead to human colonization and that's a pretty divisive subject at the best of times and a question about dark energy from our uh, audience so, lots to do to, uh, today, Fred. Uh, let's talk about this star, Icarus, that uh, Hubble has uh, been used to detect halfway across the universe. We know that because there's a half-mile post that shows us where it is. <laughs> What's the story? Um, actually, it's more like two-thirds of the way across the universe. Wow. It's, uh, you're, under, you're underselling it, Andrew. So, um, it's uh, a star which we see because of this quirk of nature that you and I have spoken about before, which is called gravitational, gravitational lensing. Lensing, exactly. Um, so, okay, so here's the story. Uh, back in 2011, uh, the Hubble Space Telescope took a very, very deep image. That means, um, you know, they, they, they concentrated for a long time uh, to gather all the photons of this particular area in, of, of the sky. Um, and it's an area that has... Um, in what you might call the foreground, even though it's several billion light years away, uh, a cluster of galaxies. So this cluster of, you know, each one, each galaxy with 100 billion stars or something like that, but they're clustered together. There's probably a thousand of these galaxies. Um, so that is an enormous concentration of mass. And what that does is bends the space around it in accordance with um, uh, Einstein's theory of gravity, what we call general relativity. And in bending the space around it, it acts like a giant telescope uh, and uh, focuses on, effectively focuses on us, the light from objects behind. And, and faint galaxies and quasars and things of that sort behind the cluster, instead of being sort of blocked off by it, they're actually magnified by it. You can see these curiously distorted images of very distant galaxies. Uh, into, in, in between the images of the, the lensing galaxies themselves, the ones that are actually acting as the telescope. So that's the scenario. We've got a cluster of galaxies in the middle ground, you might call it, and then other stuff in the 
far distance, at a distance of about 9.3 billion light years. Um, and that is the stuff that's being magnified. Now, in 2011, um, uh, the, the image that was made of this area of the sky showed nothing but these very distant galaxies looking distorted and, you know, slightly anemic. But then another image taken in 2016 revealed a star where one had not been seen before. And what that's telling us is that it's not an exploding star, Andrew, just to clarify, because um, supernovae, the exploding stars, you see them across actually greater distances than this because they are so incredibly bright. This is a normal star, albeit a big one. It's probably 100 times the, uh, the diameter of the sun and it is something like a million times brighter. Why did it pop into existence? It's just because everything in space is moving and even at these enormous distances, the movement makes a difference to the actual alignment of the gravitational lens. So as this cluster of galaxies and the distant star behind it, as they change their, very slowly change their relative positions, that changes the magnification factor of the gravitational lens. And suddenly the star comes into range of our telescopes. It's brightened up because of the geometry of the lens. So, so the seven years ago, we didn't have a clue about it. For uh, two years do. ago, we suddenly can see it. That's right, in 2016. So that, mm. That's when these were these objects, these sorry, these uh, observations were made. We're just seeing the the, the reports of it now. Um, extraordinary stuff, really. And uh, as you say, it's because the the stars and the galaxies have moved uh, relative to one another. Um, the uh, astronomers who are doing this work, who are um, so, uh, based at the University of Minnesota and, and other uh, institutions in the United States, they have uh, given this star the name of Icarus. Um, he actually, uh, uh, a guy called Patrick Kelly, he's at uh, Minnesota University, he liked the idea of calling it Warhol. Um, and it's named after, of course, the American artist Andy Warhol, uh, who said that things, everybody gets their 15 minutes of fame. Um, and this star has its 15 minutes of fame when it is perfectly aligned but apparently nobody liked that oh. uh, I quite like it so yeah. it ended up as Icarus do you, do you want to know what its proper name is oh I'd um, love to I can't wait is... <laughs> it's M-A-C-S-J-1149 plus triple two three lens star one <laughs> no. yeah <laughs> I've forgotten it already yeah, well, so have I. Um, and just, uh, just to explain, Andrew, that you know, you, um, a lot of people think, oh God, these astronomers—they, they just pull these numbers randomly out of the air. No, they it, do. Have, actually, they do have a meaning. Yes, they do. It's a catalog number, but the numbers mean something because most of those digits in there are actually the position of this object in the sky. Um, it's, you know, the equivalent of latitude and longitude on Earth, something we call right ascension and declination. Mm. And that tells uh, anybody um, who kind of recognises that exactly where this object is, uh, what part of the sky it's in. Now, you said it was quite a large star compared to ours. Uh, it's uh, a blue supergiant. It is, that's right. So uh, does that make it young, middle-aged, getting elderly, yeah. um, Zimmer frame, you know? What? <laughs> this this star will never reach uh, Zimmer frame status ah. uh, because a blue supergiant... Yeah, they, it'll live fast, die young. Exactly that. And, um, you know, it's one of these stars that uh, it, it, it is probably um, 
it's probably uh, maybe even one of uh, a relic of the the early universe because we think that the stars in the very early universe were much bigger than the ones that we see around us now um, just because there was so much hydrogen in that early universe and it sort of was all uh, more compressed together than it is now and that's what the raw material of stars is um, I suppose uh, so it's 9.3 billion light years away that means that the universe was something like four billion years old uh, when this star was shining. So it probably isn't one of the first generation of stars. We think they were much earlier. But nevertheless, it's still an example of the giant stars that um, were common, more common in the early universe than they are now. Yeah, uh, and, and a great discovery. And it, it, makes, it prompts the question in my mind as to, um, you know, is, is that the limit of Hubble's capability? Seeing two-thirds of the way across the universe is quite a, an incredible achievement. It, it, to see a star at that distance is absolutely unprecedented. I mean, um, I, you know, I, I can remember uh, when I started my career, um, I remember when we first saw the first galaxy uh, that was about halfway across the universe. Um, actually, it's slightly less than that, in fact. And that was an almost a miraculous occurrence uh, because the sensitivity of telescopes was getting to the stage where you could actually see these things. But of course, now with the Hubble, we can see individual stars. Um, you remember a galaxy is billions, hundreds of billions of stars. This is one individual star that mm. we're seeing. So it, it just shows the way progress has been made. Um, your question about whether this is at the limit of the Hubble's detectability is right on the money because it is. It's right um, at the extreme end of the sensitivity uh, range of Hubble. And that's why astronomers uh, are keen on Hubble's successor, um, which uh, for many years now has been called the James Webb Space Telescope. It's named after a former NASA administrator. Let me guess, his uh, name's James Webb. Uh, you, you're right on the money, absolutely. Um, for, for, for some years before that, it was called the Next Generation Space Telescope, named after somebody called Next Generation. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so, yeah. That's the, okay. The, There's a kid out there named Metallica. So, you know, I, yeah. I wouldn't have actually said you were wrong. <laughs> Mr. Next Generation. No, so James Webb, former NASA administrator, um, it will almost certainly wind up with a different name when it flies. And that's why it's in the news at the moment. And it's why I'm desperately trying to segue into this topic. You're doing well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, doing well, yeah. Um, is, uh, it is in the news because it's been delayed again, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, we were expecting uh, the, the James Webb Space Telescope to be launched uh, towards the end of next year, around about next October. But uh, NASA has now pushed that back to no sooner than May 2020. So we're still two years away from the James Webb Telescope. It's one of a number of delays. Um, it's kind of understandable why this is happening, Andrew, when you think about what kind of a piece of kit this is. It's a telescope whose main mirror is 6.5 metres in diameter compared with the Hubble, which is 2.4 metres in diameter. Um, but this mirror is too big. Uh, if it was a single piece of glass or glass ma glassy material, it would, it would be too big for the payload of anything oh, yeah. uh, to, to carry it up there. And so it's made um, in, a, in a segmented form. Um, segmented mirrors are actually typical now of some of the biggest 
astronomical telescopes in the world, you make lots of hexagons uh, smaller than the main mirror. These, I think the hexagons on the James Webb telescope are about one and a half meters across. There are 19 of them. But the thing is, um, this has to uh, reach its station in space, which is not in Earth orbit. It's actually um, 1.5 million kilometers on the dark side of the Earth. It's uh, 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 on the opposite side of the Earth from the sun. It will sit in the Earth's shadow so that it's not receiving radiation from the sun. Uh, it's at a point which is uh, called L2, which is um, a code name for a, st a stable point. Uh, in the environment of the Earth, where you can put things and they don't move far away. There are five of these, what are called Lagrange points. Um, this is one that is on the opposite side of the sun. There are a number of spacecraft there already, so it's not a world first. But what is difficult is that you're putting it a million and a half kilometers away and expecting this mirror to unfold like a, you know, like a flower opening its petals. And then the components register to um, a, a fraction of the wavelength of light to, you know, one nanometer, one billionth of a meter, something like that. Uh, so it is a big technological uh, ask. And that is why I think NASA is playing safe with all the tests that they're doing uh, to ensure that the uh, James Webb Space Telescope doesn't get out to its station a million and a half kilometres away and then just go, bleh, yeah, and which, not do anything. You know, if you remember rightly, Hubble got up there and um, couldn't focus. So, you know, Indeed, got, I do. Yeah. It took a um, long time to get that sorted out. Uh, uh, but the thing about Hubble was it's in Earth orbit. It's in low Earth orbit. It's about uh, 700 kilometres, if I remember rightly. It will, uh, and, and that meant that sp um, spacecraft could, could reach it, the, hub, the space shuttle. Uh, could go and fix it. With the James Webb, you get one shot at this and that's the end of it. Yeah, I can understand Although, why they're being super-duper careful. Yeah, that's right. Mm. So I think we'd, we'd rather have something two years later that works than something now that doesn't work. Yeah, but uh, by the sound of it, given the scale of this uh, piece of kit, as you said, uh, it's going to do some amazing things. I think it will, I yes. I can't wait. Should be uh, should be amazing. Uh, you're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and... Fred Watson. Zero G and I feel fine. Space nuts. Now let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, ExpressVPN, rated number one by Tech Radar. Uh, this is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years and I love it. When I joined ExpressVPN, they were, they were brand new, uh, new to the market, but uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons. And there was just something about their, their business model that I particularly liked and a couple of years down the track honestly can't complain their interface is very easy to use their their service is second to none uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do and they were brilliant so you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all it's all about privacy uh, do you really want big tech companies governments and others knowing uh, what's going on with your online activity. Even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. Uh, I think you'll agree. And governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? 
This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, so protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's T-R-Y-E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now... Back to the show. Next up, Fred, we're going to talk about water on Mars. Now, we know it's there. It's been found before. They've scraped the surface and found ice, and we're talking about water ice. And uh, it's uh, now been found in vast quantities, which is starting to make people think about, oh, if there's that much water there, we could colonise this planet. And that brings up all sorts of controversies, I'm, I'm sure. But uh, tell us about this, this frozen water. Yeah, don't get me started on colonization. <laughs> As you know, I'm not um, a great fan of the idea of colonizing Mars, although I do think we should be exploring Mars. And I think um, human, you know, humans are the, the the correct medium to do that. So we have we do have to go to Mars, but I don't think we should be going there in our millions or billions. I think we've got to fix up our own planet first. Yeah, well, maybe we won't. Maybe that's why yeah. we're looking at Mars. Well, maybe, maybe that's right. However, uh, to cut to the chase, and um, this story is one that I'm sort of reading between the lines a bit on it because the, the only report I've read is fairly sketchy. Uh, but um, it comes from scientists uh, at the U US Geological Survey. And once again, um, it's a discovery that sort of underlines the enormous amount of water we kind of already know is on Mars. I mean, one of the statistics that staggered me a few years ago is if, the, if you melt all the ice in the southern polar cap, just the southern polar cap of Mars, it's enough to cover the surface to an average depth of 11 metres. That's just uh, amazing. Water. So there is colossal amounts of water there. Uh, we know also from the, the Phoenix lander, uh, which I think you and I talked about in a previous existence, uh, landed in 2008 in uh, Mars's northern Arctic region. Uh, that had a little backhoe scoop on it that sort of scratched the surface. And sure enough, within a few few millimeters, actually, it wasn't even centimeters. There was there was actually water ice underneath, a kind of permafrost. Or somebody spilled the sugar. We're not sure yet. <laughs> well, uh, actually, the 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 most basic observation proved that it wasn't sugar. Uh, and let me tell you what that was. The so this thing, as it scratched into the ice, it it sort of made crumbs of ice. Little fragments yeah. of ice came off. And it sort of looked at these, and then it looked at them again three days later, and they'd all gone. Ah. And that's because those crumbs of ice actually sub, uh, they sublimate. They turn directly from uh, a solid to a gas, yeah. uh, because that's because of the low atmospheric pressure on Mars. You, you've, uh, water, it doesn't turn into water first. It just evaporates straight from ice. Mm. So, um, yeah, sugar doesn't do that. No, <laughs> no, true enough. All right. So well, proving that theory uh, wrong. Very nice observation was that, you know. I, oh, I, it was amazing. The photos just incredible. They were incredible. That's right. So, and, and I think the new discovery is incredible as well because this is um, a chasm. Uh, it's a, a, 
probably um, an ancient water channel on Mars. And, you know, we, we know that Mars was once warm and wet, uh, probably 3.8 to 4 billion years ago. Um, so there are, there's lots of, uh, you know, the geological evidence of there having been water on Mars. And I'm pretty sure that that's what I'm looking at in the image that uh, is accompanying this story. But what it's also saying is that this channel um, cuts into a kind of plateau and um, we can now see that it has very high cliffs on the edge of it, uh, but those cliffs are ice, they're not rock. Um, so we've got 100 meter high cliffs, which are basically solid ice, wow. uh, overlain with probably a fairly thin layer of soil. Um, and that is why this discovery is being described as a mountain of frozen water. It's, uh, you know, it's basically uh, this, this ice plateau. What's nice about it from a scientific point of view is that almost certainly if we sent, um, you know, a, a spacecraft there, particularly if it had humans on who could uh, climb all over this and have a look at it, we'd find that this ice is stratified, that it's in layers. And maybe that we could see um, evidence of the way Mars's climate has changed in those ice layers, in a kind of similar way to the way we, you know, we do ice cores in Antarctica to yes. look at the way the Earth's climate's changed. That that kind of thing could almost certainly uh, be done here. Um, but of course, as you say, what's exciting Mars explorers is um, the fact that here are abundant uh, supplies of water ice, which not only gives you water to live by, uh, it also... Um, fuel. Yeah, it gives you rocket fuel, exactly, mm. uh, because you can dissociate it into hydrogen and oxygen, and then you've got your rocket fuel. You're yes. ahead of me in the game, Andrew Dunkley. Well, we've, we've talked about it as uh, something that they could envisage for future missions to the moon. But, yeah, um, exactly. you know, if you've got this kind of water on a place like Mars, wow, and... You know, the possibilities are uh, staggering, really. Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, we the more we know about Mars, the more we see that um, a lot of its uh, ancient oceans are still there. They're just frozen, you know, under, uh, not very far underneath the surface of the planet. It opens up a whole can of worms, though, because uh, if we are going there to to look around and see if there was life and if there are fossil records and things like that, there's every possibility that they could be embedded in, in water ice like this, I suppose. But it also opens up the possibility that there are maybe rem remnants of viral life that we don't want to dig up. That that's yes, a concern that's right. on Earth. So yeah. why wouldn't it be a concern on Mars? Uh, it would be a concern on Mars. And that's why we have these planetary protection rules, because... Uh, not only are we keen to avoid taking earthly microbes to worlds like Enceladus and Titan and, and Mars, uh, we're also keen not to bring anything back yeah. uh, that, um, that could, could be harmful to us. Which, which so, they recently portrayed in the science fiction film Mars, although it wasn't a virus, it was just some sort of weird plastic creature that killed everybody. But, um, <laughs> it, uh, but yeah, that, that's, that is definitely a, um, an issue for the future. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Mm. Um, I, but actually, you know, just, you know, the, the, the step that comes before that almost is what this reveals uh, about the possibilities of there being life on Mars. Um, and actually, there's a very nice comment from Simon George, who's a professor of uh, chemistry at uh, Macquarie University. Uh, he said, only on Earth we find life associated with ice sheets. So it doesn't actually have to be liquid water in which life can exist. 
and it will be very interesting to look at where these ice scarps are melting. Uh, the melting could uh, potentially expose new bits of ice and possibly be a very interesting place to look for new evidence of life, either in the recent geological past or even living on, on Mars today. And of course, just to um, to, to tie up the loose end there, he, he refers to um, he refers to ice melting. Um, and in fact, we think that there are places where uh, liquid water briefly does uh, appear on Mars, and it would be perhaps these scarp slopes if they were in direct sunlight, uh, on, you know, near the equator. Then you might see exactly that. So, in great. fact, in fact, I think there was a photo some years ago of uh, an, uh, a liquid water burst. I think it was in a crater or something on Mars that immediately froze, and then of course it disappeared. Yeah, uh, I, yeah. I believe I saw that photo some time back. Yeah, so yeah. Well, they know that's happening. Yeah. That, that's right. And we've we've actually discussed um, there's a natural antifreeze a chemical called uh, perchlorate, uh, which and these different perchlorates, uh, if they're if they're actually dissolved in water, um, reduce its freezing point by something like 70 degrees. So um, you can have liquid water on Mars. Um, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're actually, you know, just um, so many observations that have been made of this sort of thing. There is, there was evidence just going back to the Phoenix rover. Uh, sorry, it wasn't a rover. It was just a, a stable lander that landed on Mars and explored the immediate vicinity. But there was photographic evidence from that, that uh, water droplets formed on the underneath of the uh, of the rover's structure, actually on it on its legs. Sorry, wow, the, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I've never um, heard these that water, uh, and th there was there was some tantalising evidence that little droplets were running down the legs of the of the lander, not rover because it didn't go anywhere. Yep. but it had these struts underneath it. Um, uh, I'll try and dig those out because um, they were they certainly caused uh, headlines at the time. Yes, indeed. Wow, uh, it gives um, people who are planning future missions a lot to think about, and uh, you know when, when it comes to choosing a landing point. Or, or a point where you'd want to base uh, humans, um, gee, the, the possibilities are starting to become endless, which is very yeah. exciting, very exciting yeah. indeed. Mm. <clears throat> All right, more on this, no doubt. You're listening to the Space Nuts podcast with Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory, and I'm Andrew Dunkley. Three, two, one. Space Nuts. Finally, Fred, we are going to tackle a listener question, and this one comes from Richard Visser. Hello, Richard. Thanks for um, getting in touch. Uh, he says he's a long-term podcast listener but a first-time contactor. Um, smiley emoji. Uh, now, here's his question. I know we don't yet know what dark matter is, but uh, please hold a discussion giving details on the leading alternative theories and what experiments are being planned to investigate this further. Kind regards and keep up the great work. He's talking about me, Fred. Uh, there are many out there that greatly appreciate it. Dark matter has become the topic. Dark energy, dark matter. It's, it's, the, um, it's the sexy topic in astronomy at the moment. I suppose that's because it's also such a big mystery. So uh, are there a lot of um, theories and experiments going on to try and figure it out? There is a lot of work going on, and it's a great thing to talk about. And, you know, we could do this almost for days. Uh, but uh, let's just review the story of dark matter. It was first postulated actually back in 1933 uh, by Fritz Zwicky, that astronomer that all modern-day astronomers love because he was so... <clears throat> 
uh, he was so gifted with words when it came to destroying his colleagues. Uh, he referred to his colleagues as uh, spherical bastards. <laughs> and when somebody said, why are they spherical bastards? It's because they're bastards whichever way you look at them. That's what it said. <laughs> That's um, very clever. Yeah, he's a clever man. Uh, but he realized that uh, he was observing a cluster of galaxies in the constellation of Coma Berenices and realized that these galaxies were moving too fast for the cluster to kind of hold on to itself. Um, the speed that the galaxies were moving at suggested that they should, that the whole thing should just fly apart. And, you know, we, we know the universe is pretty old. It would have had time to do that. But something else was holding them in. Uh, and then uh, people just, they wrote that off as something nobody understood. It really didn't catch any attention at all. And it was in the 1970s when two astronomers, one here in Australia, Ken Freeman, and uh, more famously, uh, uh, Vera Rubin in the United States, realized that galaxies are rotating too fast to stick together if all you can see is all that is there. And that was when the dark matter problem uh, really came into its own. So since the late 1970s, we've taken it very seriously indeed. And in fact, modern observations show that dark matter, whatever it is, um, invisible matter would be a better word, it outweighs normal matter by five to one in the universe at large. So for every you know gram of hydrogen or whatever else there is, there's five grams of this other stuff. And it's everywhere. It's in the room you're sitting in. It's in the room I'm sitting in. It's all over. It's actually um, sitting out on a couch playing Candy Crush at the moment. <laughs> I'm not go going there. there. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's one for you, not for me. <laughs> the um, uh, Just a, a quick aside, um, it's quite different from dark energy. That's a different problem altogether and mm. another big mystery. And actually, of, of the two mysteries, dark matter is probably the one that will be solved first. Dark energy we really have no idea about. Um, it's an energy of space itself, and that's, you know, just boggles the mind. Dark matter is something you, at least you can get your head around because we know it comes in blobs. Uh, and we know that galaxies tend to form in those blobs. Uh, that's the, 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 the way the universe seems to work. So the question of what it is really hit the uh, astronomical consciousness in the, I guess, the, the, the 1980s and 90s. And um, in the 1990s, um, a, a big experiment was done actually at Mount Stromlo uh, here in Australia uh, with uh, one of the telescopes there. And, of course, in other observatories around the world. But the Mount Stromlo telescope was one of the leaders in this. Um, the, the idea was, OK, dark matter, we've got something that we can't see. It doesn't cast a shadow. It doesn't blot out the light of things behind it. It doesn't really seem to interact in any way with, with the kind of matter we know about, except that it has gravity. So it pulls stuff together. So the, the two theories emerged, uh, the machos and the wimps. And the machos were massive compact halo objects, which were thought to be possibly, and by massive, I mean big, big stuff, things like uh, orphan planets, dead stars, black holes um, in copious numbers. These things were all postulated as being what were lumped together as massive compact halo objects. Why the halo? Because that's where we know the dark matter is, in the halos, the spherical halos of galaxies. Um, the competing theory, well, let me let me just get rid of machos because the evidence all pointed to their non-existence. Um, the experiment that was done at Mount Stromlo was looking for exactly what we started this segment talking about, uh, gravitational lensing. They were, uh, if, if machos were present 
in a galaxy in large enough numbers to cause the effects that we see, in other words, outweighing normal matter by five to one, then we would see gravitational microlensing, as it's called. The, the, the black holes, the little planets, the whole, um, you know, the whole lot of, uh, of stuff would actually have an effect on the stars behind them. You'd get gravitational lensing effects, um, very copious ones, and they were simply not seen. Mm. So that pushed the macho theory very much into the background, where it still is. We don't really believe that it was large, that it is large objects that, co that constitute dark matter. So the WIMPs theory came forward there, and WIMPs are weakly interacting massive particles. It's a kind of generic name for subatomic particles that weakly interact. That means they don't interact significantly with normal matter, but they're massive, they have mass, and it's that mass that gives us the gravitational effects. And that's the current best theory. Um, that has evolved slightly, however, because uh, we uh, now are looking for specific species of subatomic particles. Um, let me just pause there for a moment in the narrative. <laughs> this is uh, Dark Matter 101, because um, there is another thing that came into discussion actually during the 1980s, and that was the possibility that we had gravity wrong, that our understanding of gravity was incorrect and that at very low massive uh, very low accelerations actually is the technical term that our laws of gravity break down and don't hold good and in fact um a theory was put forward by uh, an israeli astronomer called mordechai milgram which was called mond mond stood for modified newtonian dynamics he said that okay you can get rid of the idea of dark matter if you suggest that at very low levels of acceleration the newtonian laws break down um that the problem with that at the time and the reason why it really never took off was that if you accept that then uh, you know, countless other things that we think we already understand go haywire. The whole picture of our universe becomes inconsistent. And actually, there's been another nail in the coffin of Mond within the last um, couple of weeks because uh, there is a new, uh, oh, it's not a new galaxy, it's a galaxy that's probably quite old, but new observations of it. And as you correctly quoted to me just a few minutes ago while we're yes. off air, it is called NGC 1052 DF2, or DF2 for short. Um, it is a galaxy that contains no dark matter. Um, it's uh, it, there, there is enough mass that we can see in the stars to hold it together, so no dark matter in it. Uh, which, which sort of flies in the face of what we are theorising in regard to dark matter. So uh, it's what, a, it's what, a misfit. Yes, it, it is a misfit. But what it proves, Andrew, is that Mond is not a possibility, and that's because it fits the you know the Newtonian dynamics perfectly. So if all you've got there is all you can see, then this, is the, this galaxy behaves in exactly that way. So it's a mystery why it has no dark matter, but it proves that dark matter is real uh, because the, the dynamics work, the gravitation works. So is this galaxy flying apart? Uh, it's not, no. It's, it's got enough matter in it that we can see to hold it together. Right. So it, so it doesn't need dark matter to keep it intact. Um, and uh, that's how we believe there is no dark matter because the the evidence uh shows that there is lots of evidence actually part, partly the fact that there's no gravitational lensing because we can see distant objects through this galaxy it's fairly thin on the ground ah i get it uh, yeah. but also um when you measure the speeds of the stars in it 
uh, they, they're travelling at the right, the right rate uh, if the only thing that's there is all you can see. So uh, it's a kind of slightly quirky, but certainly a proof that dark matter is something real. So the, the quest continues, and really it's continuing now at places like the Large Hadron Collider in, uh, on the Swiss-French border, where they are looking for evidence of something called supersymmetry, because supersymmetry is a theory of uh, the particle universe, which uh, actually, which particle physicists are very attached to, because it explains some other anomalies in physics, um, but it also has uh, particles within the theory that uh, would actually fit the bill for dark matter. Actually, things called neutralinos and axions are two of the the, 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 the top candidates for that. But we've seen no evidence of uh, of, um, of supersymmetry yet at the Large Hadron Collider. It's a bit disappointing. It probably suggests that we need an even bigger collider to do all this. So um, the, the jury's still out on what this stuff is. There is one final thing that I should throw into this. I hope this is the discussion that our, uh, our listener wanted, uh, the full account of dark matter. One other thing is that we can we might find dark matter by itself annihilating because we believe dark matter particles if they do come together they'll collide and leave a certain signature in the gamma ray spectrum well, so maybe just maybe that will be the way that we actually identify dark matter my um, hope and i'm pretty optimistic is that within the next five years we'll know what it is and uh, discussions like this will not be necessary anymore and we'll fuel our cars and everything will be clean uh, well, hopefully, yeah, that <laughs> could put dark matter into the petrol tank and get five times as far on a tank full. You never know. You never know. You never... Richard, thank you for the question. Hopefully we provided you some direction. We weren't able to answer it because dark energy is still just a huge mystery. Dark matter, as Fred said, may be the next thing we solve. So uh, thanks for the question. We really appreciate it. And we certainly do appreciate any of the questions you send. We've still got a few to get through which we'll look at in future episodes. Uh, keep in touch with us via Facebook or however you like to contact us, you know, slingshot it across the Pacific, whatever you like. Uh, Fred, thank you as always. It's been great fun. It's been good talking to you as well, and you've done very well uh, with your um, with your non-flu flu there. Yeah. I can yeah. see you suffering. You, you, yeah, it's a good thing this is not a, uh, a vodcast <laughs> because I look pretty bad at the moment. My eyes are watering and I can feel this horrible tickle in the back of my throat that is so wanting to burst out but i'm holding it back good man um, for now <laughs> though i think we'd better stop before that just turns into an implosion and we we'll talk to you next week sounds great thanks a lot andrew fred watson from the australian astronomical observatory and from me andrew dunkley thank you as always for listening to Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com. <laughs>